Chapter Three of the Lost Cafuzalum by Pauline Ashwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. It is maybe two hours afterwards, Eru having adjourned the meeting abruptly so that we can uh, take in the implications of the new data. Lenny has gone off somewhere by himself. Kirsty has gone after him with a view to mothering him. Eru, I suspect, is looking for Kirsty. Pavel, Arrow, Dilly and the Crow are in a cabin arguing in whispers. Nick and Pisa Potek are exploring one of the hoppers, cargo-carrying, drop-shaped, and I only hope they don't hop through the hull in it. B and I, having done a tour of the ship and ascertained all this, have withdrawn to the conference room, because we are tired of our cabins, and this seems to be the only other place to sit. B breaks a long silence with the remark that, however often you see it, Maclaire's technique is something to watch like choosing my statement to open with. It broke the ice beautifully. I say, shall I tell you something? B says, yes, if it's interesting. My statement, I inform her, ran something like this. The best hope of inducing a suspension of the aggressive attitude of both parties, long enough to offer hope of ultimate reconciliation, lies in the intrusion of a new factor in the shape of an outside force to be seen impartially hostile to both. B says, gosh, come to think of it, Liz, you have not written like that in years. You've gone all pompous like everyone else. Well, that makes it even more clever of Maclare. Enter Cray Patterson and drapes himself sideways on a chair, announcing that his own thoughts begin to weary him. I say that this does not surprise me at all. Lizzie, my love, he says, you are twice blessed, being not only witty yourself, but a cause of wit in others. Was that a bit of primitive lee with which Maclare regaled us, really, not from the hand of the mistress, or was it a mere pastiche? I say... Whoever wrote that, it was not me, anyway. It seemed to me pale and lukewarm compared with the real thing, says Cray languidly. Which brings me to a point that, to quote dear Kirsty, seems to have been missed. I say, yep, like what language it was that these people wrote their login that we can be certain the incognitans won't know. More than that, says B, we didn't decide who they are, or where they were coming from, or how they came to crash, or anything. Come to think of it, though, I point out. The language and a good many other things must have been decided already because of getting the right hypnotapes and translators on board. B suddenly lights up. Yes, but look, I bet that's what we're here for. I mean, that's why they picked us instead of Space Department people. The ship's got to have a past history. It has to come from a planet somewhere, only no one must ever find out where it's supposed to be. Someone will have to fake a log, only I don't know how. The first reel with data showing the planet of origin got damaged during the crash, says Cray impatiently. Yes, of course, but we have to find a reason why they were in that part of space, and it has to be a nice one. I mean, so that the incognitans, when they finally read the log, won't hate them any more. Maybe they were bravely defending their own planet by hunting down an interplanetary raider, I suggest. Cray says it will only take the briefest contact with other planets to convince the incognitans that interplanetary raiders can't and don't exist. Modern planetary alarm and defence systems put them out of the question. That's all he knows, says B. Some interplanetary pirates raided Lizzie's father's farm once, didn't they, Liz? Yes, in a manner of speaking. But they were bums who pinched a spaceship from a planet, not many parsecs away, a sparsely inhabited mining world like my own, which had no real call for an alarm system, so that hardly alters the argument. Well, says B, the alarm system in Incognita can't be so hot, or the observation ships could not have got in and out, for that matter, unless, of course, they have some other gadget we don't know about. On the other hand, she considers, to mention interplanetary raiders raises the ideas of menace in an unfriendly universe again, and this is what we want to cancel out. 
These people, she says at last, with a visionary look in her eye, come from a planet which went isolationist and abandoned space travel. Now they've built up their civilization to a point where they can build ships of their own again, and the ones on Gilgamesh have cut loose from the ideas of their ancestors that led to their going so far afield. How far afield, says Cray. No one will ever know, I point out to him. Don't interrupt. Anyway, says B, they set out to rejoin the rest of the human race, just like the people on Gilgamesh really did. In fact, a lot of this is truth only kind of backwards. They were looking for the cradle of the race, that's what. Then there was some sort of disaster that threw them off course to land on an uninhabited section of the planet that couldn't understand their signals. And when Incognita finally does take to spaceflight again, I bet the first thing people do is to try and follow back to where Gilgamesh came from and make contact with them. It'll become a legend on Incognita, the lost people. The lost, lost, the lost Cthulhu, said Cray. In other words, we switch these people off a war only to send them on a wild goose chase. At which a strange voice chimes in. No, 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 son, you've got it all wrong. Mr. Yardo is with us like a well-meaning skeleton. During the next 25 minutes, we learn a lot about Mr. Yardo, including material for a good guess as to how he came to be picked for this expedition. Doubtless, there are many experts on reversal of vacuum-induced changes in organic tissues, but maybe only one of them is a romantic at heart. Mr. Yardo thinks chasing the wild goose will do the incognitans all the good in the galaxy. It will take their minds off controversies over interhemispherical trade and put them on the quest of the unobtainable. They will get to know something of the universe outside their own little speck. Mr. Yardo has seen a good deal of the universe in the course of advising on how to recondition space-packed meat, and he found it an uplifting experience. We gather he finds this desperate bit of damn foolery we are now on pretty uplifting altogether. Cray keeps surprisingly quiet, but it is as well that the rest of the party start to trickle in about twenty minutes later, the first arrivals remarking, Oh, that's where you got to. Presently, we are all congregated at one end of the table, as before, except that Mr. Yardo is now sitting between B and me. When Leclerc and the Colonel come in, he firmly stays where he is, evidently considering himself one of us now. The proposition, says Leclerc, is that we intend to take Gilgamesh to Incognita and land her there in such a way as to suggest that she crashed. In the absence of evidence to the contrary, the Incognitans are bound to assume that that was her intended destination, and the presence of weapons, even disarmed, will suggest that her mission was aggressive. Firstly, can anyone suggest a better course of action, or does anyone object to this one? We all looked at Lenny, who sticks his hands in his pockets and mutters, No. Kirsty gives her little cough, and says there is a point which has not been mentioned. If a heavily armed ship crashes on Incognita, will not the government of the hemisphere in which it crashes be presented with new ideas for offensive weapons? And won't this make it more likely they will start aggression? And won't the fear of this make the other hemisphere even more likely to try and get in before the first new weapons are complete? Hell, I ought to have thought of that. From the glance of unwilling respect which the Colonel bestows upon Leclerc, it is plain that these points have been dealt with. The weapons on Gilgamesh were disarmed when she was rediscovered, he says. Essential sections were removed. The Incognitans won't be able to reconstruct how they worked. Another fact for which we shall have to provide an explanation. Well, how about this? The early explorers sent out by these people, the people in Gilgamesh, oh, use Cray's word and call them the Lost Cthulhuum. Anyway, their ships were armed, but they never found any enemies, and the idealists of B's story refused to even carry arms anymore. Which is just about what happened when the Terrys set out to rediscover the colonies after all. 
So the lost Cafuzalum could not get rid of their weapons completely because it would have meant rebuilding the ship, so they just partially dismantled them. Mr. Yardo suddenly chips in. About that other point, girlie. Surely there must be some neutral ground left on a half-occupied planet like that. He beams round, pleased at being able to contribute. B says, the thing is, and then stops. We wait. We have about given up hope when she resumes, the thing is, it will have to be neutral ground, of course. Only that might easily become a, a thingamy. I mean, a, a causus belli in itself. So the other thing is, it ought to be a place which is very hard to get at, so difficult that neither side can really get to it first. They'll have to reach an agreement and cooperate. Yeah, says Dilly, that sounds fine, but what sort of a place is that? I'm sorting out in my head the relative merits of mountains, deserts, gorges, etc. When I am seized with inspiration at the same time as half the group, we say the same thing in different words, and for a time there is Babel. Then the idea emerges. Drop her in the sea! The colonel nods resignedly. Yes, he says, that's what we're going to do. He presses a button and our projection screens light up, first with a map of one pole of incognita, expanding in scale till finally we are looking down on one little bit of coast on one of the polar islands. A glacier descends onto it from mountains inland and there is a bay between cliffs. Then we get a stereo scene of approximately the least hospitable scenery I ever did see. Except maybe when Parvi Laldut's brother made me climb up what he swore was the smallest peak in the Himalayas. It is a small bay backed by tumbled cliffs. A shelving beach can be deduced from the contour and occasional boulders big enough to stick through the snow that smothers it all. A sort of mess of rocks and mud at the back may be glacial moraine. Over the sea, the ice is split in all directions by jagged rifts and channels. The whole thing is a bit like Antarctica, but nothing is high enough or white enough to uplift the spirit. It looks not only chill, but kind of mean. This place, says the colonel, is the only one about which we have any topographical information that seems to meet the requirements. Got to know about it through an elementary planetography. One of the observers had the sense to see we might need something of the sort. This place... The stereo jigs as he taps his projector. Seems it's centre of a rising movement in the crust. That's not to the point. Neither side has bothered to claim the land at the poles. I see their point if it's all like this. And a ship trying to land on those cliffs might very well pitch over into the sea. That is, if she were trying to land on emergency rockets. Rockets. That brings home the ancientness of the ship Gilgamesh. But after all, the ships that settled incognita probably carried emergency rockets too. This settled... The meeting turns into a briefing session and merges imperceptibly with the beginning of the job. The job, of course, is faking the background of the crash, working out the past history and present aims of the lost Cafuzalum. We have to invent a planet and what's more difficult to convey all the essential information about it by the sort of sideways hints you gather among people's personal possessions, diaries, letters, etc. And what is even more difficult, we have to leave out anything that could lead to definite identification of our unknown world with any known one. We never gave that world a name. It might be dangerous. Who speaks of their world by name except to strangers? They call it home, or earth often as not. Some things have been decided for us. Language, for instance. One of 2,000 or so earth tongues that went out of use late enough to be plausible as the main language of a colonised planet. The settlers on Incognita were not of the sort to take along dictionaries of the lesser-known tongues, so the computers at Russet had a fairly wide choice. 
We had to take a hypno course in that language. Ditto the script, one of several forgotten phonetic shorthands, designed to enable the tongues of aliens to be written down, but the aliens have never been met. It is plausible enough that some colony might have kept the script alive. After all, Phasia uses something of the sort to this day. The final result of our work looks pretty small. 23 personal background sets, a few letters, a diary in some, an assortment of artefacts. Whoever stocked this ship we are on supplied wood of the half dozen kinds that have been taken wherever men have gone, stocks of a few plastics known at the time of the exodus or easily developed from those known and not associated with any particular planet. Also books on design, a form writer for translating drawings into materials and so on. Someone put in a lot of work before this voyage began. Most of the time it is like being back on Russet doing a group project. What we are working on has no more and no less reality than that. Our work is all read into a computer and checked against everybody else's. At first we keep clashing. Gradually a consistent picture builds up and gets translated finally into the personal background kits. The lost Kafuzalum start to exist like people in a history book. Fifteen days hard work and we have just about finished. Then we reach. Call it Planet Gilgamesh. I wake in my bunk to hear that there will be a brief cessation of wait. Strap down, please. We are coming off mass time to go on planetary drive. Colonel Delano Smith is in charge of operations on the planet, with Ram and Peter to assist. None of the rest of us see the melting out of fifty years' accumulation of ice, the pumping away of the water, the fitting and testing of holds for the grappling beams. We stay inside the ship on 5.8G, which we do not have time to get used to, and try to work and discard the results before the computer can do so. There's hardly any work left to do anyway. It takes nearly 12 hours to get the ship free and corked and ready to lift. Her hull has to be patched because of Mr. Yardo's operations, which make use of several sorts of vapours. Then there is a queer blind period, with up now one way, now another, and sudden jerks and tugs that upset everything not in gimbals or tied down, interspersed with periods when weightlessness supervenes with no warning at all. After an hour or two of this, it would be hard to say whether mental or physical discomfort is more acute. B consulted, however, says my autonomic system must be quite something. After five minutes, her thoughts were with her viscera entirely. Then, suddenly, we're back on mass time again. Two days to go. At first, being on mass time makes everything seem normal again. By sleep time there is a strain, and next day it is everywhere. I know as well as any that on mass time the greater the mass the faster the shift. All the same, I cannot help feeling we are being slowed, dragged back by the dead ship coupled to our live one. When you stand by the hull the Gilgamesh is only ten feet away. I should have kept something to work on like B and Kirsty who have not done their letters for home in case of accidents. Mine is signed and sealed long ago. I'm making a good start on a neurosis when Delano Smith announces a meeting for one hour ahead. Hurrah! Now there is a time mark fixed. I think of all sorts of things I should have done before. For instance, taking a long look at the controls of the hoppers. I've been in one of them half an hour and figured out most of the dials. Up, down and sideways are controlled much as in a helicar. But here a big view screen has been hooked into the autopilot. When across the hold I see the airlock start to move. Gilgamesh is on the other side. It takes forever to open. When at last it swings wide on the dark tunnel, what comes through is a storage rack empty, floating on antigrav. What follows is a figure in a spacesuit, modern type, but the windows of the hopper are semi-polarised, 
and I cannot make the face out inside the bubble top. He slings the rack upon the bulkhead, takes off the helmet and hangs that up too. Then he just stands. I am beginning to muster enough sense to wonder why, when he comes slowly across the hold. Reaching the doorway, he says, Oh, it's you, Lizzie. You'll have to help me out of this. I'm stuck. McClare. The outside of the suit is still freezing cold. Maybe this is what has jammed the fastening. After a few minutes tugging, it suddenly gives way. McClare climbs out of the suit, leaving it standing, and says, Help me count these, will you? These are a series of transparent containers from a pouch slung at one side of the suit. I recognise them as envelopes in which we put what are referred to as personal background sets. I say, there ought to be twenty-three. No, says McClare dreamily, twenty-two were saving one of them. What on earth is the use of an extra set of fake documents and oddmans? He seems to wake up suddenly and says, What are you doing here, Lizzie? I explain, and he wanders over to the hopper and starts to explain the controls. There's something odd about all this. McClare is obviously dead tired, but kind of relaxed. Seeing that hour of danger only 36 hours off, I don't understand it. Probably several of his students are going to have to risk their lives. I'm on the point of seeing something important when the speaker announces in the colonel's voice that Professor McClare and Miss Lee will report to the conference room at once, please. McClare looks at me and grins. Come along, Lizzie. Here's where we take orders for once, you and I. It is the colonel's hour. I suppose that having to work with undergraduates is something he could never quite forget, but from the way he looks at us, we might almost be Space Force personnel. Low grade, of course, but respectable. Everything is at last worked out, and he has it on paper in front of him. He puts the paper four square on the table, gazes into the middle distance, and proceeds to recite. 1. This ship will go off mass time on 2nd of August at 11.27 hours ship time, 36 hours from now. At a point 1,000 miles vertically above coordinates 1650 east 7320 south on planet Incognita, approximately one hour before midnight local time. Going on planetary drive as close as that will indicate that something is badly wrong to begin with. Two, this ship will descend, coupled to Gilgamesh as at present, to a point 70 miles above the planetary surface. It will then uncouple, discharge one hopper and go back on mass time. Estimated time for this stage of descent, 40 minutes. 3. The hopper will then descend on its own engines at the maximum speed allowed by the heat disposal system, estimated at 37 minutes. Gilgamesh will complete descent in 33 minutes. Engines of Gilgamesh will not be used except for heat disposal and gyro auxiliaries. The following installations have been made to allow for the control of the descent. A ring of eight rockets in peltothane mounts around the tail, and one outsize anti-grav inside the nose. Sympathizer controls hooked up with a visi-screen and a computer have also been installed in the nose. 4. Gilgamesh will carry one man only. The hopper will carry a crew of three. The pilot of Gilgamesh will establish the ship on the edge of the cliff, supported on anti-grav a foot or so above the ground, and leaning towards the sea at an angle of approximately 20 degrees with the vertical. Except for this, landing will be automatic. 5. The colonel's voice has lulled us into passive acceptance. Now we are jerked into sharper attention by the faintest possible check in it. The greatest danger attaching to the expedition is that the incognitions may discover that the crash has been faked. This would be inevitable if they were to capture A. the hopper, B. any of the new installations in Gilgamesh, especially the Antigrav, or C. any member of the crew. The function of the hopper is to pick up the pilot of Gilgamesh and also to check that the ground appearances are consistent 
If not, they will produce a landslip off the cliff edge using power tools and explosives carried for the purpose. That is why the hopper has a crew of three, but the chance of their having to do this is slight. So I should think. Ground appearances are supposed to show that the Gilgamesh landed using emergency rockets and then toppled over the cliff. This will be exactly what happened. The pilot will carry a one-frequency low-power transmitter activated by the change in magnetic field on leaving the ship. The hopper will remain at 500 feet until this signal is received. It will then pick up the pilot, check ground appearances, and rendezvous with this ship at 200 miles up at 1827 hours. The ship and the hopper, both being radar absorbent, will not register on alarm systems, and by keeping to planetary nighttime, they should be safe from being seen. Danger B will be dealt with as follows. The rocket mounts, being of peltothane, will be destroyed by half an hour's immersion in water. The installations in the nose will be destroyed with andite. Andite produces collecular disruption in a very short range, hardly any damage outside of it. The effect will be as though the nose broke off on impact. I suppose the incognitions will waste a lot of time looking for it on the bed of the sea. Four 10-centimetre cartridges will be inserted within the nose insulations. The fuse will have two alternative settings. The first will be timed to act at 12.50 hours, seven minutes after the estimated time of landing. It will not be possible to deactivate it before 12.45 hours. This takes care of the possibility of the pilots becoming incapacitated during the descent. Having switched off the first fuse, the pilot will get the ship into position and then activate a second, timed to blow in 10 minutes. He will then leave the ship. When the antigrav is destroyed, the ship will, of course, fall into the sea. 6. The pilot of Gilgamesh will wear a spacesuit of a pattern used by the original crew and will carry personal background set number 23. Should he fail to escape from the ship, the crew of the hopper will on no account attempt to rescue him. The colonel takes up the paper folds it in half and puts it down one inch further away. The hopper's crew, he says, will give the whole game away should one of them fall into incognition hands, alive or dead. Therefore, they don't take any risks of it. He lifts his gaze ceilingwards. I'm asking for three volunteers. Silence. Manning the hopper is definitely second best. Then light suddenly bursts on me. I lift my hand and hack B on the ankle. I volunteer, I say. B gives me a most dubious glance and then lifts her hand too. Cray on the other side of the table is slowly opening his mouth when there is an outburst of waving on the far side of B. Me too, Colonel. I volunteer. Mr. Yardo proceeds to explain that his special job is over and done. He can be more easily spared than anybody. He may be too old to take charge of Gilgamesh, but will back himself as a hopper pilot against anybody. The Colonel cuts this short by accepting all three. He then unfolds his paper again. Piloting Gilgamesh, he says, I'm not asking for volunteers now. You'll all go to your cabins in four hours' time, and those who want to will volunteer secretly to a computer hookup. Computer will select on a random basis and notify the one chosen. Give him his final instructions too. No one need know who it was till it's all over. He can tell anyone he likes, of course. A very slight note of triumph creeps into the next remark. One point. Only men need volunteer. Instant outcry from Kirsty and Dilly. B turns to me with a look of awe. Nothing to do with prejudice, the colonel says testily. Just facts. The crew of Gilgamesh were all men. Can't risk one solitary woman being found on board. Besides, spacesuits, personal background sets, all designed for men. Kirsty and Dilly turn on me, looks designed to shrivel. And B whispers, Lizzie, how wonderful you are. End of chapter 3